0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 3 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 by William Holden Hutton this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The Reign of Richard I, 1189-1199 to Richard I was in many ways unlike his father. He was more fickle, more chivalrous, impetuous, warm-hearted. He was a man of Poitou rather than an angevin. He had the hot, hasty passions of his fathers, but he had also the poetic, sentimental tastes of the southern lands. He would sin in hot blood and repent with tears. He was fickle and impulsive rather than treacherous, and never would he harden his heart and turn his face to the wall like the stern old king whom he had hurried to his grave. It was with a burst of sorrow that he met his father's body, it was with bitter tears that again and again he confessed his sins and vowed to give up his old bad life. He was generous and forgiving, and he was strong and bold beyond the strongest of his time. Besides this, he was not deficient in statesmanship. If he did not plan like his father, he knew at least how to let his father's system work. But his most conspicuous quality was his military genius. He was for the times a great general and a great engineer, and he could plan too as well as fight. Richard I was born at Oxford in 1157. Thus he was a man of 32 when he succeeded to the vast territories of his father and mother. He had had some training in government. Since 1171 he had been nominally Duke of Aquitaine, and his father had in later years allowed him more independence than he had given to his other sons. He came to the throne with his mind full of the crusade. It appealed to him in its romantic, generous aspect, and seemed to offer also a cure for the remorse which overwhelmed him for his cruel treatment of his father. He gave himself up at once to planning the expedition and to providing for the safety of England during his absence. All his lands at once owned him as lord, There was no rebellion, for all men seemed to think only of the danger of the Holy Land. He could make what terms he pleased with his vassals. Not want of power, but want of money was the difficulty he had to face. At his first council he therefore sold all that he could. To the Scottish king he gave back for money the rights of homage that Henry II had exacted in 1174. To three of the bishops he sold sheriffdoms, Chief among them was the old Hugh de Puisset, the great Bishop of Durham, who by buying both the earldom and the sheriffdom of Northumberland became all-powerful in the northern shires. He was thus supreme under the king in all civil affairs over the district from the Tees to the Tweed. The strength of such a man as Hugh de Puisset might easily be a danger to the crown itself. He was himself descended from William the Conqueror. He had now for thirty-six years held the great bishopric and palatine earldom of Durham, which stood as a broad borderland between the English and Scots. He had steered carefully between the rival kings. In 1174 he had seemed to be leaning toward William the Lion, but Henry II had not found it necessary to punish him. He had retained his practical independence throughout the rest of the reign and the discretion which had kept him clear of all share in the Becket quarrel was not likely to desert him now. But he was a formidable rival to the new justiciar. Richard was not content with recognizing the power of the Bishop of Durham. Remorseful, perhaps, for his refusal, while his father still lived, to allow any provision to be made for his brother John, or hoping to buy his gratitude by the greatness of his generosity. He gave him vast possessions in England and abroad, and placed them outside the control of the ordinary law. He filled up the vacant bishoprics and promised York to his half brother Geoffrey, but forbade him to land in England for three years. He changed all the sheriffs, and at the head of the government he placed a man of his own, William Longchamp, whom he had made Bishop of Ely. Then he prepared to depart. He thought he had taken with him the most dangerous spirits, and had bribed to quietness those whom he left behind. He had left the administration to new men, but they at least understood its working, and had paid too highly for their posts to be willing to risk their loss. Yet he had really left behind sufficient causes of danger to upset a government more strongly based. His brothers had each a grievance, John that he was not named his heir, Geoffrey that he was not trusted to return to England, and Longchamp, though an honest loyal servant, was an upstart whom the barons despised, and who had all the arrogance and rashness of one who has rapidly made his own fortune. Richard did not leave England entirely at peace. The first months of his reign were marked by a fierce attack on the Jews, who were the great usurers of the time, and whom the kings protected because they used them as bankers, coiners, tax collectors, and money lenders. Henry II had granted special privileges to the Jews. They dwelt apart in quarters of their own, but the popular hatred was in no way quenched by their isolation, and barons and people took every opportunity of washing out their debts in the blood of their creditors. The occasion of a crusade naturally aroused fanaticism and the Jews were never remarkable for meekness. Massacres at several of the towns marked the beginning of 1190, and at York the Jews, in despair, leaped with their wives and children into the flames of the burning castle, rather than fall alive into the hands of their persecutors. The criminals were severely punished, but the lot of the Jews became worse from that day till their expulsion by Edward I. Richard sailed in April 1190 from Dartmouth. He did not return until 1194. Longchamp had a difficult part to play. He saw at once the danger of the great power that had been placed in the hands of men who bore no great love to the absent king, He did what he could to confine the bishops to their ecclesiastical functions, but Hugh of Durham, though he submitted for a while, was in the end too strong for him, and John never ceased to plot against the throne. The privileges granted to both and to their friends rendered them practically independent of the royal power, and only in the east and southeast could Longchamp rule unchecked. His first act was to punish the rioters at York— and is next to overawe the bishop of Durham. He was now papal legate, and so claimed to rule in church as well as state. But his arrogance, his train of a thousand horsemen, his rash treatment of the barons soon raised a storm against him. In February 1191, Queen Eleanor, who might have preserved peace, left England to join the king in Sicily. In the same month, John returned. A few months afterwards, Geoffrey, now consecrated to York, landed at Dover. Longchamp rashly had him arrested. Church and barons alike resented the act. Then Walter of Coutances, Archbishop of Rouen, produced a commission from the king, giving him authority as justiciar. John won over the Londoners by recognizing their liberties, and Longchamp fell almost without a struggle. John was recognized as regent, and London now obtained recognition as a communa, the summit of municipal liberties, such as some French cities already enjoyed. By the formal act of the regent and barons, privileges which it may be had already been practically enjoyed were now fully secured. The chroniclers regarded the growth of the great city with alarm. It is a swelling of the people, the king's fear, the priesthood's terror, said one. The dismissal of Longchamp was really a constitutional revolution. While it showed the claim of the barons to control the king's ministers, it proved also that they had now learnt that the central authority might be used for their own ends, to better effect than if it were simply overthrown, as was designed in 1173. It was a precedent which was to be followed later by the barons Who compelled John to sign the great charter, by those who set up the oligarchy of 1258, and those who slew Piers Gaveston and William de la Pole. For the next two years, the well meaning archbishop Walter of Coutances tried to keep down the intriguing barons and the treacherous John, but at length it appeared as if all were in vain. Richard, it was known, had left Palestine, but had been lost to view on the way home it was now reported that he was in prison in austria john at once claimed the crown saying that his brother was dead only queen eleanor and walter of coutances kept him at bay we may now turn back to follow the fortunes of the king richard embarked at Marseille on august seventh eleven ninety and reached messina on september twenty third the winter was spent in quarrels with his partner in the crusade the french king philip and in attempts to secure the dowry of his sister, the widowed Queen Joanna of Sicily. Finally Philip agreed to release Richard from marrying his sister Alice, to whom he had been so long pledged, and Queen Eleanor arrived, bringing with her Berengaria, daughter of Sancho VI, King of Navarre, whom Richard desired to espouse. The English then sailed for Cyprus, and on April 10th Richard married Berengaria at Limassol. He deposed the tyrant Isaac Komnenos of Cyprus for ill-treating shipwrecked English sailors and established a government of his own. Then he sailed for Palestine and landed at Acre on June eighth. Philip of France was there before him. Both kings fell ill, but at length were able to capture the town. Philip at once returned to France, but Richard pressed on to deliver the Holy Land from the infidels. He began negotiations with the great sultan, Saladin, for the cession of Jerusalem, but the Saracens were not yet cowed and the conferences were of no avail. Then he turned to barbarities which disgraced his cause, slaying hostages as Saladin slew his. On August 20th he began his march southward along the coast, scattering the enemy as he went, but opposed and harassed at every step. On August 30th he arrived at Caesarea. Thence he went to Joppa, fighting and winning a great battle at Arsuf on the way, and after long delay finally reached ramleh At the end of the year he arrived within thirteen miles of Jerusalem. There the army stayed, beset on all sides by Saladin, and suffering terribly from lack of supplies and from the intense cold. In the middle of January they began a retreat. They little knew that Jerusalem could then easily have been stormed. Richard next turned to rebuild the great crusading fortress of Ascalon, working with his own hand, giving lavishly of his own money, and encouraging all by his words and his example. But he could give no unity to the distracted counsels of the crusaders. Guy of Lusignan and Conrad of Montferrat, who both claimed the crown of Jerusalem, fought against each other till the latter was assassinated, April 27, 1192. Saladin again dared the invaders to battle. Richard went about capturing fortresses and doing deeds of extraordinary prowess, but got no nearer to his goal. In the summer the army again advanced on Jerusalem, but went no farther than before. It is said that in the pursuit, after a chance fray, Richard saw the holy city from far off. But deserted by his allies, he was compelled to return, and sick at heart, he at last made a truce with Saladin and prepared to return home. Richard's exploits in Syria were not forgotten. His heroism at the relief of Joppa, where he drove his ship on shore and led the attack upon the masses of the enemy, his personal combats, his utter fearlessness, his strength, and the chivalrous deeds that won the affection even of the Muslim foe, made the name of the Lionheart long remembered in the land he had tried to rescue from the infidel. His return was a series of romantic adventures and misfortunes. He was shipwrecked, separated from his companions, and compelled to make his way across Germany in disguise. Then he was seized by Leopold, Duke of Austria, whose enmity he had incurred during the Crusade, as he passed through Vienna in December 1192. In the following March, he was given up to the Emperor Henry VI, and for more than a year he lay in prison. When Walter of Coutances heard of the king's capture, he sent two envoys to negotiate for his release. An immense ransom was demanded, 150,000 marks, 100,000 pounds, more than twice as large a sum as the revenue in the last year of Henry II. But the Justiciar made clever distribution of the demand, and the people nobly answered to the call. Every man, clerk or lay, gave a fourth of his income and a fourth of the value of his movables. A heavy scutage was exacted from the knights, and the wool of the Cistercians and the Gilbertines and many of the precious vessels of the churches were seized. Richard was now allowed considerable freedom. He called his mother and the justiciar to him, and so Hubert Walter, Bishop of Salisbury, took the rule of the land. He had been trained under Henry II, and was a loyal man and a great administrator. Richard, with his wise mother beside him, soon made terms with the emperor. He received from him the kingdom of Arles, a possession which the emperors had always great difficulty in obtaining, and which was but a barren honor to the English king. But before he released him, the emperor made him own himself his man, and thus bring England so long counted as outside the empire, under the overlordship of the German Kaiser. He was set free on February 4, 1194. The news that he was at liberty made John and Philip tremble. They had tried by every means in their power to induce the emperor to keep him in prison, and now they feared the vengeance that their baseness deserved. The English people had bravely made up the ransom. And they welcomed Richard as a national hero. He landed on the 13th of March and at once, in a great council of barons, declared the lands of John and his men forfeit for his treason, and then levied a new tax on all ploughland, carucage, sold offices, and fined those who had withstood him so as to gather an army to meet Philip in the field. He stayed only two months in England but left the land at peace. He was generous and forgiving, and took again into favor those who, like his brother Geoffrey, had broken their oaths to maintain the peace by absence or by submission to the royal officers. He left England on May 12th and never returned. Hubert Walter, now Archbishop of Canterbury, as well as Justiciar and the Pope's legate, ruled well if sternly till the King's death. The justices in 1194 received special instruction to make exact inquiry into all the dues of the Crown, and the Constitution of the Grand Jury or Jury of Presentment was defined. The sheriffs were forbidden to be justices in their own counties, and new officers called coroners to be elected in the county court were appointed to limit their judicial power. In 1195, all men above the age of fifteen were required to take oath not to be thieves or robbers or receivers of such, and knights were assigned to keep the peace. In the same year, there was a riot in London. The new commune or corporation, which was the representative of the great merchants in their guild, had pressed hardly on the poor citizens who worked at the handicrafts and had no share in the rule of the great city. One of the aldermen, William Fitzosbert, William with the long beard, men called him, an old crusader and a friend of the poor, took up their cause and demanded that the taxes should be assessed proportionately, not paid by poll. A tumult arose, and the king's justiciar had to interfere. William's followers took up arms, but he was seized and executed. The people called him a martyr. In 1198, the king demanded the service of his barons for war in Normandy. But St. Hugh, Bishop of Lincoln, a holy man whom Henry II had loved and promoted, declared that his lands owed no service outside England, and his opposition caused the withdrawal of the demand. This, like Becket's stand at Woodstock in 1163, was an important step in the assertion of the barons and church's right to refuse the royal demands for money. In the same year a tax of five shillings was levied on every hundred acres of land, and to assess it justly a new inquiry like that of Doomsday was made, to obtain an exact list of all the landholding classes. Hubert Walter now resigned his office of justiciar, and Geoffrey Fitzpeter succeeded him. He was stern in enforcing the demands for money which the king still continued to make. Richard, when he crossed to Normandy in 1194, found little difficulty in bringing John to his knees, or after a few battles and sieges in making Philip agree to a truce. His generosity made him forgive when others would have punished, but it was impossible to have a final peace with France, Philip would not be satisfied till he had made himself the true sovereign of his land, nor Richard till he was secure from French attacks. In 1197 Richard obtained the alliance of the courts of Flanders and Champagne and of the Bretons, who recognized his nephew Arthur, Geoffrey's son, as their duke. In the same year he planned and built his great castle, Chateau Gaillard, on a bend of the Seine above Rouen to defend his capital. It was the badge of Richard's sovereignty of the North. I would take it if its walls were of iron, said Philip. I would hold it, replied Richard, were its walls of butter. The war with France ended in a truce, and Richard turned to quell a revolt among the Poitevins. While he was besieging the castle of Chaloux, where he heard that great treasure-trove was being kept from him as lord, he was struck by an arrow from the walls. The castle was taken, but Richard's wound proved mortal. He called before him the man whose arrow had pierced his breast and said, What harm have I done you that you should kill me? You slew my father and my two brothers with your own hands, was the answer, and me too you would have killed. Revenge yourself as you will, for I will bear all torments, since I know I have rid the world of one who has done so much ill. But Richard said, I forgive thee my death, and ordered him to be released. The lion-hearted king died on April 7, 1199. He had named John as his heir. He was buried near his father at Fontevraud. Though he had lived rashly, he died penitent. A year before his death he had turned from his evil ways and promised to give up his three daughters, as a priest called them, pride and covetousness and evil living. The first I give to the Templars, he said, the second to the grey monks, Cistercians, the third to some of my bishops. If he was more of a knight-errant than a king, and much more of a foreigner than an Englishman, he was born on English soil, and he made the English name renowned in Europe and in the Far East. A very strong man he was, says a great writer, who knew at last his own need of mercy. End of chapter 3.